I'm not the house of cards that falls down easily Ooh, I'm strong enough to handle what you throw at me Welcome to Mental Health News Radio. I'm your host, Kristen Sunanta-Walker. Just what are we going to discuss? The intimacy that is mental health. Let's continue to make it as comfortable as discussing brain health or heart health. This show has been on the air for several years and we have amazing co-hosts. And then we created a network of podcasters on mentalhealthnewsradionetwork.com, a place where every possible facet of mental well-being can be talked about openly. My show, after several hundred interviews, the format is this. Intimate, deep, funny, touching, sometimes uncomfortable, but always vulnerable conversations with interesting people. The goal is to have you, our listening family, many of you who have become my good friends, feel as though you are listening in on private conversations. Thank you for tuning in and becoming part of this amazing journey with me and now with our network of podcasters. Just knowing this podcast might be helping any of you realize you are not alone on this journey called being a human being makes doing this podcast worth every second. Hi everyone, Kristen Sinanta Walker here and I am with one of our new podcasters with uh, Positive Connections Radio, Michael Cook. And I met Michael uh, a few months ago and um, listened to some of his story. It's extremely compelling. We're going to talk about it here today on this show so you can get to know him and find out about his show, but actually it's exceedingly compelling. But first I want to say, Michael, thank you for coming on my show. Well, thank you so much, Kristen. I'm glad to be here. Yeah. Now tell our listeners first, why did you want to do a podcast? Well, I, I was a police officer for 19 years. In the last 10 years, I was an undercover narcotics detective and um, I'm in recovery. So um, I'll get to my story later, but I pretty much lost everything uh, due to addiction, and I found recovery. And I want to, I wanted to start a podcast so I can reach out to more first responders out there that are seeking help or actually are afraid to seek help. And once they hear my story and know that it's safe and confidential, that they could stand up and speak their truth, that they might be able to keep their job and not lose everything and be that much better at what they're doing. So you're you're hoping to spare them some of the journey that you went through. Exactly. I I, I got through it, and it, I'm blessed that it happened to me at the at the time that it did happen, um, and what I went through, the struggle, and the um, unable to reach out for help for fear of stigma that I got through, and I'm able to turn it back around and be the voice for others who seems like they aren't able to speak up for themselves or are afraid to because right. of the stigma. So let's go back to why did you want to get into, you know, doing police work? Well, you know what? Growing up, I always had a huge respect for police and first responders, firefighters. I had a good childhood. I was taught to right from wrong, of course, and to respect adults and respect authority. And one of the very first memories that I have of a police officer, I was born in Chicago, moved out here to California when I was nine, 
But when I was about five, I remember driving downtown Chicago with my dad and his uh, his 60-something bug. And we came to a four-way stop at a big intersection. And I remember there was a police officer out there directing traffic and doing all the hand signals. And he actually came to the passenger side of my car, or my dad's car, and uh, rolled down the window a little bit. And he started talking to my dad. So I'm sure my dad knew him. It seemed like they were friends. And he reached into his pocket and he said hi to me. And he gave me this round gumball that was in a package. It was a, one of those white gumballs with the little dots on it, the blues and the reds and the, the pinks and the, and the yeah. greens. And he gave it to me and I reached for it. I looked at my dad and he just like gave me a nod like, it's okay. And he just gave it to me. I said, thank you. He, he went back to what he was doing, did a few couple moves for me and made me laugh and went back directing traffic. And I still have that memory in my mind of him walking away with his big leather jacket and his boots and his, his motorcycle type of helmet. And, um, and so from that point on, um, through my teenage years, I always had a respect for authority. I respect for law enforcement and I never got in trouble, even though I did things when I was a kid that I could have gotten in trouble for, but, mm -hmm. um, but I thought it was a noble thing. I always wanted to do what was right. I always wanted to uh, stand up for the person that was um, having injustices done to them, even as a small kid. I remember uh, moving to a new neighborhood and um, the first night getting there, they were playing some kind of game in the front yard and I didn't know any of them. And I, I, I befriended people pretty quick when I was younger. And one of the kids that was leading it was doing something like totally cheating on the game. And so I stood up to him and I said, hey, you're cheating. Well, I got my butt kicked over that and uh, they all jumped on top of me. And I learned that, you know, standing up for myself, it could cause some pain and it did. But um, I kept on doing that kind of stuff. So once I got a, you know, age and out of high school, I, um, I decided to go into law enforcement. Hmm. Was it what you was it what you imagined as a child when you, you know, first got into it, maybe your first, second year of, of being a part of it? Did, how long did it take before, you know, there's always a reality of things that kind of set in that are very different from how we perceive things as a kid. So did you have a moment like that? Well, when I first got into it, it might have been in the back of my mind, but I remember I went through the uh, police reserve academy first. So I was working uh, a job and uh, going to school full time. And uh, I went through the police academy, the reserve police academy. And once I got picked up um, from the department, yeah, I, 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 I was great. I, I thought it was the best. And I felt I felt empowered. I felt so proud of mm -hmm. myself. Uh, look at myself in the mirror with uh, the uniform and the badge and the vest and the gun and the cuffs. And uh, I felt just very complete and assured of myself. So looking back, I, I never really, I might've thought at times in the back of my mind, oh yeah, that the police officer that I knew when I was five years old, but I felt the sense of pride and that yeah. I was going to be there to help other people. That's good. That's what you want your, <laughs> your first responders to feel like. Oh, so for sure. when you, um, you know, there are some things that happened to you where, uh, you were, had injuries and things like that. Did those things happen while you were a police officer? Meet, well, I know you're a police officer when you become an undercover narcotics detective, but did those things happen before the undercover piece or did, was that were those things that happened after you spent or during the 10 years you spent as a detective? 
Well, injury-wise, you know, through my life, I got injured, you know, early 20s when I first got hired on. I got injured on the on job on jobs I did. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, when I went to the doctors, I wouldn't um, accept any kind of pain medication. I, I was pretty much above that in my mind. I thought taking any kind of medication would be like taking drugs. And I was the one that was out there preventing drugs from being sold and bought and used and people driving under the influence. So my my common coping mechanism for any kind of pain, like physical pain that I endured, uh, was drinking alcohol. So, okay. and that and also was- widely accepted, widely accepted, right? It, 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 going into it, it, it definitely widely accept, accepted, especially dealing with emotional issues when you're out there um, in the face of the public, and especially with cameras and and video, you definitely have to be on your game and you can't show emotion. You have to maintain command presence, what they call it is, you know, the first part of command presence is what you look like and how you appear to others. And you have to make, make sure that you take control of the scene. So whether it's a a hit and run or um, a barking dog or a crime scene when there's body parts lying all over the place and the mother is crying outside and you have to like stand in front of her and say, you know, you can't go inside the house and you want to break down. At least I wanted to break down inside. So all all those things built up. I used alcohol pretty much for a coping mechanism and it's accepted that when, you know, the shift's over, you go out and drink and, and you might talk about what happened that day. But most of the times when we went to a scene, uh, that was horrific. We would take care of business, um, call out the homicide or call out whatever um, CSI that we need out there. And usually once we clear, we go to the next call. So a lot of times we don't get a time to debrief it or even emotionally um, talk about it to one another. Right. And it's not really, uh, you know, it probably at that time and even now, you know, that you're weak or you appear weak and that you're possibly unfit if you do talk about it or get emotional about it or something, you know, do a debriefing in between different things that go on with the job. Oh, exactly. The last thing I wanted to do was to tell another officer or my superiors, hey, I need a break for a minute. I need to take a rest. I need to talk about what I just saw. I want to go cry. Mm -hmm. And sometimes I did it, but I would be breaking up and crying inside. So you know, over time, um, like you said, that you asked me the questions about the injuries. Yeah, that was part of it, too. So it, when I went to the doctors and I had like a sprained ankle or anything broken on me or bruises, um, it was painful. But I would just say, OK, just make sure nothing's broken, patch me up and I'll go back home. And I knew at home I'd have a six pack or 12 pack there. So that would take care of the pain. And um, I, you know, heal quickly and go back to work when I as soon as I could. I never like to be off of work, uh, especially in the department. I wanted to be on the streets doing stuff. Do you think that some of that, like wanting to immediately get back out there, was a way of avoiding the pain of what was going on inside? Oh, yeah. I definitely think that. I didn't want idle time to do um, paperwork. I was out there to you know, protect the public and to be there for someone that needed help. And all along... Mm-hmm. I wasn't, in my mind, I wasn't able to ask for that kind of help for fear of, you know, the public or people that I worked with considering me weaker. 
um, and not able to do my job. And I did, definitely wanted to um, be a cop. It was the best job I ever had in my life. Mm. So what led you to going into undercover narcotics detective? So through my career, the first five, six years, I, uh, you know, volunteered for a lot of things. I was always good at finding hiding places. I was always good at interrogating um, suspects and getting confessions and investigating crimes. And I knew that the the drug trade, it was just something that really interested me. I knew that the damage that was done out there on the streets, you know, cops and firefighters, you know, we see it at 3.30 in the morning when everybody's sleeping. You know, we're just starting our shift a lot of times and we're seeing the the damage that's done from narcotics that are on our streets and our children that are dying um, unnecessarily, uh, either ODs or accidents or murders. So um, I, I always respected, I always felt like I was able to um, blend in with that element of our society. And I felt confident that I'd be able to handle any situation. And, and, um, and I was, I was, I was able to get promoted to that position as, as an undercover narcotics detective. So at that, that point I, I didn't really sustain any serious injuries that would keep me from doing my work. And, mm. um, the only thing that was really, um, in the background was stuffing down a lot of emotions over the, the first six or seven years of being a police officer on the street and um, alcoholism. And I wouldn't admit that I actually had an alcohol problem because I still have my job. I still had my family. I had the cars. I had, you know, the houses. I didn't, I, I had respect from the people I worked with. I was a great cop. I did everything that I was supposed to do. And um, I was very honest. I didn't see any kind of consequences. The only consequences was maybe relationships and um, and hangovers, and and, right. and not be able to put it down. So and using that as a coping mechanism. So how about though the part where you know you're you're actively living in a state of you know cognitive dissonance when you're doing that kind of work because you're pretending to be someone you're not in order to do your job. Do you feel like that had, you know, an effect over time on you? I think as I got into it, I developed a role where I was um, blending in very well. I was dealing with confidential informants who were in, introducing me to people that were selling drugs. And I would end up getting to them who would introduce me to people that were transporting the drugs. And I would work my way up until it got so big for the unit that I was working for, we transferred over to like something bigger like the DEA or NTF or one of those organizations that has the manpower to take care of big cases. So mm -hmm. I did blend in and I was around a lot of narcotics and um, a lot of other things. And I felt like I, I did play a really good role as um, a detective at that point. So is there, is there training that goes into, look, this is going to be, there's just things that you need to watch out for. Um, in terms of your mental health, uh, because you are going to be pretending to, you know, be someone that you're not in order to gain trust of people that you're going to then end up, you know, having arrested. Yeah, I don't ever recall anything like that coming across um, with me. I knew that it was a possibility that there would be some kind of cross, um, 
I don't know what you would call it, where I would like have to watch out if I don't get too close. I mean, of course, you don't get too close to people that you're investigating, but um, blending it like I did, I didn't really ever think about it. I thought that I'd be mm -hmm. able to handle anything that came across and any situation. I didn't have very much fear of anything. So, um, you know, this, I didn't do anything too dangerous um, or outside the, um, you know, protocol of the police department but I felt confident in whatever I did and that I'd be able to handle any situation and uh, come out of it a winner for sure and go home safe. Okay. So how, you know, when did it start that you became dependent on opioid pain meds? Okay. So um, down the road a little bit, I got injured. I, um, I got injured in a snowboarding accident in my leg and then I got injured um, lifting up some stuff for work. So, I went to a doctor's a few times, and, and one of the injuries, it was it was pretty bad. So um, the doctor prescribed me uh, Vicodin, and I needed something to for the pain because it was so bad. I had my knee all wrapped up, and I knew I was going to be out of work for a couple weeks because I couldn't walk on my leg. I accepted the pain medication, Vicodin. First time I ever heard about it, I, I think Oxys. I, I've heard of Oxys. I heard of but it wasn't so big on the street yet. I didn't really hear, it wasn't such a big um, widespread epidemic. I knew heroin was out there, but it wasn't, it wasn't really big at the time. And um, right. this was, you know, mid 2000s. And so, um, so I remember going home and thinking like, okay, well, you know, maybe I'll take a, a pill and I'll drink some beers and the pain will go away. Well, I got home, mm -hmm. I took one of the pills and I'll tell you what, as soon as it hit my system, the pain went away and I had this euphoric feeling like I've never felt before in my life. And I thought mm -hmm. to myself at that moment, this is for me. And I was like, thank you, God. Thank you for this pill because now I don't have to worry about drinking as much as I'm drinking. And I could substitute it down the road. I, I thought to myself, man, if I ever needed to like get out of my state, I don't have to drink to passing out, I can take one of these pills and it'll take away all my pain. So it hit my receptor so good that it was, it was a very positive experience for me at that right. point. And so down the road, um, you know, years down the road, um, I, I got injured and I would go to the doctor and they would prescribe me, they go, do you want pain medication? And now I would be thinking, oh, oh yeah, I definitely need pain medication and make sure it's Vicodin. Because, you know, right. the other medication that it would give me, like coding, didn't work. And so, um, you know, after s several events like that, um, I got prescribed many, many um, pain painkillers. And I was able to go back to work, even when I was suffering from pain, as long as I had that medication. And pretty soon it became into a dependence where um, I needed it and I didn't have it any pain. I had maybe emotional pain, but my, uh, my brain was saying that, you know, you need to get to that state again to feel normal. So it, that was where I became dependent, where I, after I stopped taking the pills, I would withdraw. And the first time withdrawing, I remember thinking to myself, I'm a drug recognition expert. I balance people out and arrest people for being on influence of drugs. And I was looking at myself going, this is what withdrawals are. And it was horrible. It was a horrible feeling. And the only thing I could think of was how am I going to get to the doctor to get more pills? Right. So what did that turn into in terms of your job? Because I'm sure you couldn't talk about that. 
<laughs> no, well, I was ashamed. I, I got to a point where at first it was like for a, a medical reason. I had an injury and um, mm -hmm. after time went by, the doctors were still prescribing me the pills and um, and knowing myself that I was dependent and uh, a narcotics detective, in my mind, I felt, you know, I started feeling shameful that I couldn't talk about it. And I really, I, I used the excuse in my head that, okay, it's prescribed by a doctor. It's got to be okay. I knew 100% that I was wrong, but part of me was thinking, well, you know what? It is prescribed by a doctor. It is a pill. It's not like you're doing drugs off the street. Um, right. That's when I started shopping around for doctors. And so one doctor, okay. you know, gave me a prescription for one month and I would go to another doctor. And that's when I started crossing the line. And pretty soon um, that dried up and I wasn't able to get pills and I was in full withdrawals from opiates. Being a narcotics detective, um, I was around drugs. I was around pills um, all the time. And we we're doing, you know, major busts. We we're going out and arresting a lot of people and confiscating a lot of drugs. So um, the supply was always there and I never thought that I would cross the line. But, you know, one day I took some pills from um, from a person um, that we did a, a search warrant at their house and it was a bottle of uh, Vicodin they had. It was probably three or four years old. And I'm thinking to myself, OK, we're busting them for cocaine or whatever they had sales and, um, you know, weapons possession and whatever we charged them for. And this bottle was laying there. No one knew it was there. It was like discarded. So I took the pills out of there and crossing that line. I knew it was wrong. And I knew that um, it was a violation of my oath. And uh, I felt very shameful. But the draw and the dependence on having that drug in my system overrode anything logical. My frontal cortex right. was not working right. And, um, and once I had those drugs in my system, I felt normal again. I felt like I can do my job, but I started building up that shame and regret and, um, and remorse and not be able to forgive myself for what I was doing, but I couldn't stop the train once I started it. And um, I did not feel comfortable, especially after that point, and I wouldn't have told anybody what I just did because that's, you know, of course, a restable offense and I would lose my career, right? So, um, but even getting dependent on it, we never, we never talked about that. Even with injuries, no one ever came to me and said, Hey, you know, you're looking pretty bad today or what's going on with you when I was in withdrawals and I would use some kind of excuse if they ever did. So that led down a, a dark, dark, dark path where, um, you know, once I started doing that and crossing the line and, um, basically being a rogue cop or an undercover detective, yeah, it, it, that opened the door to the rest of my story, for sure. Right. Uh, and the, re the rest of the Well, first, before we go to that. I know, I know, no one likes commercials. But seriously, folks, without the help from these organizations, we could not stay on the air. Please give a shout out to zencharts.com. If you're a mental health or addiction treatment center, you'll want to use their EHR. It's gorgeous. And they're just good people. And also MyGenetics, M-Y-G-E-N-E-T-X.com, because knowing your genetic code empowers your mental health treatment. And lastly, c 
copenotes.com. We love getting positive messages right to our phones every day from Johnny Crowder. He's the lead singer of Prison, a heavy metal band sharing their music about suicide prevention, addiction recovery, and mental health. See, that was painless. Support them as they support us. Back to the show. Being having that line that you know that you cross and you're dealing with the your morals and your integrity and all those things but you are dependent on this now did you have that i know this story is you know familiar not the same career and all that but i lived this with my ex um and vicodin was his pill too and the things just progressively get worse but they sort of happen just little things they're you know choices that you make where you cross the line one time and then you make that second choice and maybe it's a bigger deal of a cross of a line and then the next time and it got to a point with him where um he became physically ill from the vicodin he was taking now he never overused it but it it started to because he'd been taking it for 30 years it started to eat eat away at his teeth it started to make him feel like he had pain that he didn't have before all that stuff that opioids do to your system so did you have anything like that where you needed more of it or you started noticing your body kind of breaking down from it well, it didn't take long um, after first taking it and I'm getting prescribed it uh, before I needed more. So just one pill every four hours was, you know, two pills every three hours to, um, you know, four or five pills at a time to, to get the same kind of mm-hmm. effect. Right. And after the injuries went away, I wasn't taking it for injuries anymore. I was taking it, you know, purely for the effect of it. And I stopped drinking alcohol um, pretty much. And the only thing that I really did to get buzzed, basically, I was chasing um, that. And I getting dependent on it, dependent on that type of drug, opiate, is something physiologically where it's overpowering, and um, all yeah. rational thought goes away. Yep. So I didn't, I didn't yeah. notice any. I didn't notice any. any anything physical, I was still able to go work out. I was still able to go running. I was still able to do the things I did before I stopped, before I started using mm-hmm. that, those pills. But once I started using them and I became dependent, I couldn't do those activities without that in my system. So um, right. it brought me to the point of feeling normal and feeling happy. Uh, but I had to have that drug in my system to feel that way at that point. So you never got to that place where it you were taking it so long that it started to decay your system to where you couldn't work out and you couldn't. No, it didn't get that far. It got to a point okay. where I wasn't able to get it anymore and I wasn't able to get the pills anymore. Um, so uh, especially legally through a doctor. And um, mm-hmm. and that's when I started taking it from, from work and from um, from the scenes that I went to, where I can get it from and justifying it that I needed it in my system. Right, right. And there wasn't anybody that you spoke to about this, any colleagues that you spoke to about, about this? No, I was, I was in shame. I was, I was shameful from the very first time I took that drug thinking, okay, Mm -hmm. well, I know it's a drug. I don't want to be considered a drug user. And, um, you know, but 
the effects and the euphoric feeling from it was so overpowering that I was able to like look the other way and say, okay, well, it's okay if I take a little bit here, a little bit there until it became a dependence issue. So how did you end up, you know, getting to the point where you had to, you were, you know, not allowed to be a police officer anymore? Okay. So I was terminated. <laughs> so <laughs> right. um, it got to a point where, yeah, um, you know, taking the pills were, was definitely a crime and um, everything should have stopped right there. I should have, uh, you know, I, I violated my oath and I should not have been a police officer. I knew in the back of my mind that, yes, um, if I continue this, um, how can I live with myself? How can I go out there and protect the public? Once the pills dried up, um, once I wasn't able to get any more, um, that's when heroin got really big where I was working and it was everywhere. And the people that I was working with, they were good at um, arresting people with heroin. And so um, it came across our evidence tables numerous times. And in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, okay, let's justify this mic in my head. Okay, I can't, I'm addicted to these pills. It's wrong. I'm shameful for it. I'm not going to ask for help because I don't want to be considered weak. Um, I don't know what kind of help there would be out there. I was fearful and did not trust anybody, um, even especially people I worked with, that once it got out that, hey, Mike's addicted to, to painkillers, I would lose my job. Um, and especially once I started taking them, if they ever found out, I definitely would get arrested for it and uh, and lose my career. So um, so it, when the heroin got around, I was able to justify on my mind and my addict minds saying, well, I can't get the pills anymore. I need this in my system. All I can think about is how the how it feels and I need to feel well. And usually people that are on opiates, they have to get well again. That means they have to have more opiates in their system when it becomes a dependence issue. So, um, you know, at that time I heard people smoking heroin and smoking pills and um, to be the good narcotics uh, detective that I was, I decided well, what better way of like being like right in there? I'll, I'm going to be just like mm -hmm. these guys that I'm investigating. And I took a little piece of heroin one day and uh, put it on some tinfoil and smoked it. And um, in my mind, I'm thinking, wow, so this is a drug. It's illegal. And the one of the pills I was taking is legal. They're both opiates. They come from the same place, basically. They're manufactured differently. Um, and, uh, and the effects was immediate. And from that point on, the pills didn't work. So mm. I became going deeper and deeper where um, heroin was readily av available. And that line that I crossed, I became dependent on heroin, smoking heroin. And the only reason that I didn't inject heroin was I saw the effects of people that were on the street and doing that. It, it was immediate and you were able to tell they were under the influence of heroin when, you're, when I saw them. So... Um, smoking it didn't cause that physically to me. And, um, it got me so deep in dependence that, um, it soon all came to an end once they discovered that I was actually going down to evidence and, and taking some out of evidence and using it. So let me ask you this, what, you know, this was, this was years ago. So, right. so what's the landscape like? today. I know that we talk about, you know, we can certainly talk about mental health and mental illness right. more. We, addiction 
we're an, an epidemic, but we're getting better about understanding that it's an addiction. It's a disease, um, just like the Vicodin, your body, <laughs> the way your genes are, and all those things came together to be a perfect storm to go, oh, heroin, sure. come yep. to me. So it, you know, how are, are there programs anywhere where someone can go that have become dependent on, you know, a pain medication from an accident and say, listen, that are a cop and say, listen, I'm, I'm having, a, having an issue and they don't have to fear that they're going to lose their job, that they will then go get some help and there's an understanding there of what it is like is there anything at all like that oh for sure so when i when i when it all came to end and they found out that what i was doing um i got arrested i got charged with 47 felonies i went to rehab i uh lost my marriage um bankruptcy house uh and career of course they terminated me and uh, got through that part of it and started a sobriety program. I started I started going to AA meetings and working 12 steps. And I've been sober ever since this happened in 2012. And um, and I worked in detoxes and I've uh, I work in intensive outpatient right now. So my goal in life uh, and what I'm doing right now, working with first responders, um, getting help that they need that's confidential. Um, is my passion in life. And I consider this at this point in my life right now, the feelings that I had as being a police officer that first day looking in the mirror, that's what I'm feeling every day in sobriety, working with other people and working with first responders. So there are um, safe, confidential places. And my job for myself, um, and no one is telling me to do this, but this is what I want to do, is to find the places all over our country that first responders are able to um, stand up and say, look, I have this problem with pills. I have this problem with alcohol. I don't want word to get back out to the people I'm working with. I need to take some time off. Where do I go? And I'm hoping that, and they are right now, at least in the San Diego area, reaching out through their peer support, which is super important. Uh, peer support needs to be up there in every department. And they need to be a reliable source that the officer, the firefighter, whoever it is, that they're able to go to and look, I have an issue. I need to get off work for a little bit. I need to get some help. I'm dependent on alcohol. I'm dependent on pills. And they have to feel confident that the sources that they entrust with that department are confidential. So um, right. yes, there's, there's detoxes they can go to. Um, they don't have to say who they are, uh, where they're from. And there's also programs that are specifically designed for first responders. Um, and myself, I started a, a, an AA group. Uh, it's a fellowship in, a, in a San Diego where um, we meet once a week. It's uh, on the 12 steps in AA, but it's for first responders to basically be with their own. They can speak the same language as the other first responders and, um, and seek recovery and, and talk to other people that have, still have their job and are back to work and they're sober and they're free from their addictions and people that and have lost they do they still have their jobs though even with the department finding out that they're in that they've got a problem and they're getting some help or do they have to hide that they're going to that they have a problem but they are just hiding but they're getting the help for it what do you know what that i 
the most part of it, it's in your mind. Like it was in my mind that okay. I wouldn't be able to have my job. No, they, they go okay. back to the departments and I work closely with the command staff and peer support to, they, okay. they know, hey, they don't, they don't even know where they're going for. They, they might say, okay, they need some time off. And if you have a good peer structure and good support with, um, with therapists that are connected with the department that are confidential and trustworthy, the word doesn't get back to the command staff. They go back to work and they don't have to say anything. Or they can say, okay. look, I just battled you know, alcoholism and I'm working a program of recovery and other officers might come to them for help. Okay, interesting. So it's starting to, so that's interesting when you say a lot of that was your, your thinking that um, because you're of your own battle and your own internal struggle with what you were doing and sure. there really wasn't the support there either. I mean, I do remember um, some doctors that I worked with and this was several more than a decade ago that were a high of just raging alcoholics and they um, one of them finally wrapped her car around a tree. Thank God she didn't hurt anybody. She hurt herself, but um, she had to, you know, put that uh, thing in your car where you have to breathe into it. Otherwise it won't start. And um, she was like, I can't go to AA within four hours of where I live because when I walk in there, I'm going to run into my patients and then my career is over. So there's a lot of like that too. So I wonder, you know, if anyone thinks, well, I'm not, I, yeah, I want to go in and talk about this, but what if I run into somebody that is also connected to the department I'm connected to or what have you, you know, that kind of paranoia. And that, that is, yeah, I totally get that. And that's exactly what I thought. It's exactly the opposite for me. So when I got, when I I came back and I went to the rooms of, you know, AA, it could be Narcotics Anonymous, it could be Cocaine Anonymous. There's like 250 different branches of the 12 step program. So it's for everything. I walked into the room and guess who meets me outside the front door? I'm walking up there. I'm like maybe three weeks sober. I'm living in a sober living. My career's over with. I know I'm going to get terminated. I I thought I was going to go to prison. Um, Everything's done with me, but I'm walking in this meeting because they said that there's a way out um, if you just, you know, come and, and, and take these simple suggestions. And out front is a guy I recognize and he was in like street clothes and I remember his face and he comes up and goes, Cookie, because they used to call me Cookie. That was my nickname. My last name's Cook, mm-hmm. but I always called me Cookie. Well, he was, I had, I had actually, that year before, I had to arrest him a few times and um, and put him in jail. And he comes up and he gives me a hug. This was a suspect a month and a half ago that I was investigating. He gives me a hug and he goes, I'm so happy that you're here. Welcome. Oh, wow. He goes, I was in jail for the crime that I arrested him for when I got arrested. And he goes, I was in jail and I saw the news and I'm like, oh my God. And he goes, I hope that he makes it. I hope he gets through this. And it was such a surreal feeling. So I tell people that if they go to a meeting and they're there for their own sobriety and they're working their own program and they see someone they recognize or maybe they investigated or maybe they work with, well, guess what? They're in there for the same reason. They're not doing right. counter surveillance on an AA meeting. If they do, right. then that's that's their program. But if you look at right. it this way, and then you have this same common bond. It's like no one's going to run back to the department and say, hey, um, Mike's you know, in an AA meeting. He must have an alcohol problem. Well, you know what I would say? I would say, yeah, and you know what? He's taking care of it, and he's sober, right? He's yeah, doing and then you say, well, yeah, he's in AA, and you know what? So am I. So what are you talking about? 
you know what? It's funny you said that too. I was shopping maybe two months sober, and I was buying. I don't know what I was like buying clothes. I didn't. I, I had nothing. I had nothing. Everything was cut off for me. Um, and a lady that I worked with in the police department comes up, and I respected her very much. I'm not going to say her name or anything, but um, but she comes up. She gives me a big hug, and she goes, "How you doing? I'm doing great." I'm going. I'm, well, I didn't say I was doing great. I'm saying I'm doing good. I'm like I'm sober. You know, two months or whatever it was, and she hugs me again. She whispers in my ear. She goes, "I just got 11 years," and I was like, yeah. "You're part of you're," and it's anonymous. That's why it's anonymous programs because mm-hmm. you don't go around saying, "Hey, I'm working this program." Now I do because right. I have nothing to hide anymore. There's all my secrets are out. Right. But um, right. but if I was right. still working, I might be more hesitant to like say, "Hey, I'm doing these AA programs." Because the stigma is right. so great, especially around first responders looking at all oh, those are drug, drug addicts, those are alcoholics, while they go home and they go pound a fifth of vodka and they go pass out on their couch. At least they're not on the right. streets. So, mm, Fascinating. I, man, I hope the military too. Right. It's, the military. It's changing. The military? Yeah. I mean, I, I hope that they are understanding what addiction is and what, you know, if they've had this whole thing of um, alcohol, if you have an alcohol problem, you can go get alcohol treatment. If you smoke pot, you can get treatment for that. But if you view, if you go any other level than that and right. you're out, no, no support, you're done, you're, you know, at first offense. You're you're completely done, and we don't care about rehab. You are just not fit to have ever worn the uniform, and goodbye. Right. And then people are just like, "What do I, you know, what do I do now?" And yeah. I'm horrible. And so I, I hope that you know that that's not. I think, I think down the road, the way it was. Yeah, I I think it, it starts loosening up as the people that are in command they get you know, retire and the newer, um, you know, guys get promoted and girls get promoted up there in those positions that have a better understanding of addiction, they have a better understanding of depression, anxiety, and uh, PTSD. Um, If we're starting to treat treat our our people um, as a human being, like they've seen a, a horrible incident. You can't just like, you know, put your pants back on and put some dirt on your wound and go back out into battle. You know, you need to like, process this and we all process um, tragic incidences and uh, critical incidences differently and I think that um, we need to have an open door policy where we're able to get confidential help and sit in a room somewhere with someone and say look this is what's going on in my head maybe I can't work in the military anymore maybe I can't go back to work and face this or maybe I need some therapy I need some time to process this information so that was a that was the thing when I started um, having more you know first responders, which of course started with my amazing friend Stephen Kovalkovich, who introduced right. me to you. But yeah. when I started hearing more of the, about the work, like there's there's watching TV and there's slightly knowing what the job is, and then there's hearing these lived experiences and I know for me it completely changed how I view everything when it comes to anyone who's a first responder even down to if I watch a movie and I think you and I had a conversation about this once but even if I if I watch a a um you know a 
trailer for a movie and in that movie oh wow cool right. uh the villain or the superhero is is in the building and on driving there are all these police cars that are being blown up right and you know and it made me go oh my god like as a society like these you you're there to serve and protect and yet you're so disposable let's just blow up a bunch of cop cars with cops in them that have families that like don't let's not even go let's not even look at that they're just you know they're ancillary we don't need to even get into that it made me get upset and go i'm not going to watch that shit anymore because that right. perpetuates this the whole thing you're talking about have no feelings be a machine yep. you're dispensable and um and how cool it is to just blow people up that do this for a living and and not look at what they see every single day so oh, it was sure. it, that was a big change for me too of under, understanding it you know at a, from a better the oh the perspective I can since I'm not a first responder exactly well it dehumanizes um the profession and um yeah. whether you're a firefighter or a police officer you know you go to these scenes and um you know and a lot of them are horrific and it's surreal and most human beings don't get to see um, what first responders see or the military sees and to process that information like this person is really dead and to be with a dead body for a certain amount of time and to see everything that goes with it in a crime scene and um, a lot of times it sticks with you and um, the emotions of others, family members, uh, we soaked that all up. I soaked all that up inside. Yeah. The cries, the anger, uh, the fights, the... Um, you know, their world has just come to an end because their son just OD'd, but I have to stay there for eight hours with the dead body in the bathroom, right? And then I'm at that scene and it's so surreal. Um, you sort of get lost in your mind sometimes. And of course, when you're talking to another officer, you use a lot of dark humor to get through those emotional parts instead of like crying to each other and saying, oh, this is this hurts my, this is bad. I need to like take a break. No, we make a make a joke about it that if you heard it as a public person walking by, you'd want to put in a complaint to the department because it was so insensitive. Right. But to first responders, it makes complete sense and oh, it, it alleviates yeah. some of that pain. You, have to, you have to, yeah, you have to. Um, Pit, put a pin in that balloon that's getting bigger and bigger and bigger from the emotional weight of, of what you're standing in for and hours. If, <laughs> exactly. And if you can't, if you can't process that and you can't get that out and you feel like you're not safe and you feel like no one understands you and only people that would understand you anyway would be another cop, you know, it separates us from everybody else. So it's like right. the police officers and then there's the public and then the criminal element you know, moving around. But I think that over time, keeping that stuff in, it leads to depression, untreated PTSD, mm -hmm. and yep. maybe alcoholism, drug addiction like me. And um, yep. down the road, a loss of career, um, a loss of marriage. And guess what? You know, last year, more officers committed suicide than they did yeah. dying in the line of duty. And suicide mm -hmm. rate is just, it's unacceptable. Die and high, yeah. And to think that there's the answer, that is a state of desperation and um, and, and, and an internal struggle that um, you think that's the only way out that you can actually escape. And it isn't. It really isn't. Um, that's the easy way out. But a lot of times we get into our heads and um, I never got that down that low. 
um, where I was like ready to do it, but I was contemplating it for sure. And um, yeah, and we need to have help out there and confidential help that these um, men and women can go to and and seek you know counsel and seek some positive direction. That's why I named my podcast Positive Connections. My goal is to right. reach out all the positive people I know and that I'm going to meet in the future that are doing good things uh, for first responders. So I'll be a sounding board for them. I can say if they ask me what direction to take here, they're in Chicago. Hopefully I'll get a connection in Chicago that I trust, that I can see their facility and, and walk with them and, and, and experience what the officer uh, will experience there and say, yeah, I recommend this place because I know this person. I know this is how you're going to be treated. And and yeah. that's how it's going to grow. Hmm. I love it. I love this. Um, and it's so connected to mental health because the thing I always say is who the hell shows up first? <laughs> your EMTs, your policemen, your firemen, right. <laughs> uh, fire right. people, pol <laughs> police people, and your EMTs. Um, they're they on do. the front line. They do. And a lot of times the scenes we get a, a call of a, a undetermined um, traffic accident at an intersection and you, you can see from a distance it's going to be really really bad I used to pray I hope the fire gets there right now because they're going to be able to take care yeah. of the, the the triage right there and I can take care of the scene I can you know tell the tow trucks and deal with the family members uh, but the fire guys out there the fire department EMTs uh, EMS um, they really are an integral part of all of it and we all work together as a team so even though we might rib each other, you know, cops against fire, um, we really do work as a good team. And it should be more of a family atmosphere. I know the fire department working with peer support and the, um, the ranks in the fire department, they treat their people more of like a, a family. But they are a family. They, they go to the scene together. They eat together. They sleep in the same building. Um, and they work more as a team, whereas cops usually are riding solo. Uh, they do their shift. They, you know, do a check-in at the very end or a checkout, and um, and then go home. So um, okay. there's not much communication. So therein lies a, yeah, therein lies an isolation factor. Um, I know it's isolating in the others as well, but there's a, yeah, there's an extra level of isolation. Sure. Interesting. Well, tell our listeners. I know it's listeners. If you want to tune into Michael's show, you can go to iTunes um, and look for Positive Connections Radio, or you can just go to positiveconnectionsradio.com, and all the shows that he does are listed there. And then there's a, you know, several different ways that you can subscribe. He's on Stitcher and Amazon Alexa. You can you can tell Alexa to play his podcast and Siri and all of that. So I'm excited, um, yeah. you know, and I'm really really honored that you're that you're doing this and doing it with our network. And thank you so much. And I'm so honored that I'm on this too. I just like you were a godsend coming down here and meeting you a few months ago. I, I'm like, wow, mm -hmm. I can do my own a podcast. That was the first. I'm like. I never thought of that before, and yeah. I'm telling you what, I, way I, to reach people. it is, it really is a, a way to reach people, and people can, you know, contact me, and, um, you know, down the road, we'll be able to all, like, align forces and hopefully get the best treatment possible for uh, our first responders. Absolutely, and this network is a family, a faux show. <laughs> and I feel that way. We all way. check in with each other. Yeah, exactly. yeah. And, if we're if anybody's like absent for a while from Facebook or you know even if if it's people that are normally on some people aren't on at all but you know we're all like what's going on is everything okay you know we're sure. checking in so 
because everybody is, we're, we ain't doing this for, you know, to be the next Howard Stern. We're doing this guy's right. goodwill. <laughs> right. It's not sensationalism. It's, it's truly, uh, I'm doing this and you're doing this network. Humanism. Um, it is. Yeah. It is. And bringing it down to a level where there's people listening to the show right now, like, wow, maybe I can, um, you know, speak my truth. Maybe I can ask for help. Maybe it's not a sign of weakness. Maybe it's a sign of power. You know, if I, if I admit my faults, that's a sign of power to me. And, um, and it it, is just, all you have to do is take that positive step in the right direction. And you know what? There'll be people there to guide you exactly where you need to go uh, as long as you trust them right and i trust you i trust your network i met you in person and that's the that's one of the main reasons that i started this network on your network and that got me into it. i'm like i trust you Kristen, and i trust that mm, everything that we're doing here is a it's a great thing it really is and i'm telling you down the road a year or two i don't know how long it'll take you'll you'll see some very good positive changes and i hope oh, yeah. that down the road in the next year or so the suicide rates will drop and Me officers oh my yeah, they'll start getting help because it's just, I, I, it's just unacceptable for me. I, I, I know that there's lives that can be saved and families can be saved. The heartache of, of suffering, a loss of, of someone that, that possibly could have gotten treated if they were able to actually talk about their issues and not worry right, about exactly. what With they're, even what they're on. Yeah, with even just one person. And the last thing I'll say is this. This is the great thing, listeners, about podcasts. So if you know, if you're one of my regular listeners and you know someone who's a police officer, a fireman, an EMT, a nurse, you know, anyone in the, in the helping profession that's out there, you know, on the front line with people, send them shows like this. Send them Mike's show because the art and the wonderful thing about podcasting is that it's private. No one right. can see what you're listening to. It's in your earbud. If you don't feel comfortable talking yet to someone, you can at least hear someone's story so sure. you know that you're not alone. But we're going to wrap up, and you'll be on again. But, Mike, thank you so much for, for coming on. This is fantastic. Thank you so much, Christian. I, I loved it, and uh, your show is great. Thank you. <laughs> you're welcome, and thank you to our listeners for another edition of Mental Health News Radio. Bye. But never without good intentions I heat up and act on my emotions Thanks so much for listening to Mental Health News Radio. Our podcast can be found on iTunes, Stitcher, and hundreds of other podcast apps. Or you can visit our website at mentalhealthnewsradio.com. If you have a question or would like to be a guest, become a podcaster on our network, or join the amazing organizations that help keep us on the air, please email us at info at mhnrnetwork.com. Get ready for that special goodbye from our resident therapy dog, Miles, and a special thanks to Emily Sohn for letting us use her incredible song, Cordial, for our podcast music. Listen to the full song on SoundCloud at emily.sonne. Don't be surprised when I don't hate on you. After all we promised, we'd be cordial. Sometimes in you I can fight it. Good boy.